Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Intelligence Matters ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the app today. This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. That's why you have to approach this job with great humility and also with a daily fight to be accurate. We get directly personally attacked by President Donald Trump. There is that natural human reaction to say, okay, I'm going to get you for back for that. Game on. And that's not our job. What we do overseas creates actions that affect us back here. Actions and reactions. This is Intelligence Matters with Michael Morrell, a joint production of the Cypherbrief.com and CBS News. I'm Cypher Brief CEO and publisher Suzanne Kelly. In this podcast, the former acting director of the CIA speaks with top leaders who talk candidly about what they've seen and what they think it means for global security. As a former CIA analyst, Morell is uniquely skilled at asking the right questions and making connections that provide deeper insight into complex security events. Because intelligence matters. This is Intelligence Matters, and I'm Michael Morell. I got to know many national security reporters during my time in government, and Kim Dozier is one of the best. Kim is taken seriously not only by the people who read and listen to her work, but also by the people she is covering. I had the opportunity today to sit down with Kim to talk about her career, about the issues facing journalism, and maybe most important, about her patriotism. With us today is one of the best national security journalists that I've known. She has a long career covering many of the major foreign policy and national security issues of the last 25 years. She is currently the executive editor of the Cypher Brief and a CNN global affairs analyst. She previously worked for the AP and the Daily Beast covering intelligence and national security, and she spent 17 years as an award-winning CBS News foreign and national security correspondent. She is not only a fine reporter, but she is a patriot And to my friends and former colleagues at the CIA and in the intelligence community, yes, those two things, journalist and patriot, can coexist. And I I think we're going to hear about that. She held the 2014-2015 Bradley Chair at the Army War College, and she works tirelessly for charities for men and women injured in combat. It is a pleasure to welcome Kim Dozier to the program. Kim, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I'm, I'm blushing after that introduction. I appreciate it. One you of really the, are. <laughs> one of the highest accolades that I couldn't put on a resume I got from a Mideast official who shall remain nameless. They called my coverage of their country harsh but fair. Mm. And ever since then, that's what I've aimed for in every aspect of what I cover, whether it's a conflict in Iraq or a government agency. Because I think the American public needs us not as cheerleaders for our government, but as ombudsmen for them. And when we're overseas, we are channeling the voices of those who have no way to be heard, whether it's a refugee fleeing conflict or someone on the receiving end of, as I unfortunately saw, U.S. actions that were carried out with all intent with good intent, but backfired. Yeah. 
I'm sure it's occurred to you that there are many similarities between journalism and the intelligence business. We both have sources, and we both work very hard to protect those sources. We both take all of that information and try to put it into a narrative that help people understand what's going on, and hopefully to bring truth, right, to, to, to the people that we're working for. I'm sure you've thought about that. I really didn't understand it until I started covering the intelligence agency that what we were both doing was trying to get accurate information to drive decision-making. Your agency was trying to help the Oval Office and concentric rings outward across the government make decisions. And in my case, I want to inform not just Congress, government, but the American public when they go into a voting booth. I want them educated on what's being done on their behalf, in their name, both here and overseas. And I want to break it down in a way that it doesn't talk over their heads, but what happens day to day, these actions taken by our government here or overseas affect people day to day, and I need them to understand foreign policy isn't just something that sounds so complex you should shut down because it matters. What we do overseas creates actions that affect us back here, actions and reactions. You know, Charlie Rose said to me once, when you're doing the news, don't underestimate the viewers or the listeners' intelligence, Mm. but don't don't overestimate how much they know. And, And that sounded to me like really wise counsel, and it sounds a little bit like what you're saying here. I always explain uh, when I sit down with um, military officers and tell them about how to talk to the media and why they should talk to the media, I always say never underestimate the ignorance of the reporter or the lawmaker sitting across from you. Mm -hmm. But don't be arrogant about it. Take a look at their background. Take a look at their resume. See where they've covered what they've covered before and understand there are going to be gaps, just like I have learned in covering Washington over the past decade, that there are gaps in understanding between different elements of U.S. national security. Some of those gaps got broken down overseas when people work together in fusion centers and war zones. But increasingly, as deployments to war zones happen less and less, I see a lot of confusion back here and, and people assessing or assigning certain goals or reasons that other agencies do things to sort of nefarious ends. I see, for instance, intelligence professionals say about special operators, oh, they're cowboys who just want to get in there and do the mission instead of us, and they don't have the same oversight we do. And then uh, the special operators I talked to would say things like, oh, the intelligence folks would never say that about us. They're our friends. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, you poor, naive creatures. (laughs) So let's go back in time a little bit. So your your father was a United States Marine. Yes. Served in World War II. Was that in the Pacific or Europe? Or? He was one of the two guys in his platoon to survive Iwo Jima. Turned down his Purple Heart because he didn't think he was wounded badly enough. And then he found out that it would have meant an extra, I think, $5 a month in his paycheck for his young wife and his mom who were struggling back home in Baltimore, and he kicked himself for his pride. So that was one of those stories that we always grew up with, Mm -hmm. you know, do the right thing, but never be too proud. Right, right. So so did he talk openly about what it was like in battle? Not until I was injured in 2006 in Iraq. And, you know, I lost my team. We lost the U.S. Army captain that we were filming that day. It was Memorial Day 2006. So Captain James Alex Funkhauser, his Iraqi translator, Sam, were both killed by this car bomb that ripped through our foot patrol. The insurgents knew we were coming, and we found out later. It killed my camera crew, Paul Douglas and James Brolin, and it left me— You were working for CBS at the time. Yeah, I was a CBS News correspondent. It was four months to the day after— ABC News anchor Bob Woodruff had also been injured with his cameraman, Doug Vogt. So I followed the same path, first to the Baghdad Casualty Hospital and then to Landstuhl Regional Medical Center in Germany. The military was providing us medical care and later gave my parents the option to stay in the medical system. The insurance paid for the medical care, but uh, they offered us that because it meant we could be in a place where they understood blast injuries. Sure. So I went on to Bethesda. And that medicine there is, is, is way advanced from, from what you have outside the military. And Well, I, I did get balled out by the folks at Shock Trauma in Maryland saying they could have handled me. And, and they I get it, but it was great to be around other wounded troops. Sure. And it was also great for my parents 
But mom and dad came um, at that point in their 80s to Launchville Regional Medical Center because the prognosis was I wasn't going to live. And after I came to and went through the long three and a half months of recovery. The main damage was to your legs, correct? Shrapnel to the brain, both eardrums blown out, bilateral femur fractures, and first to third degree burns from my hips to my ankles, and my femoral artery had been cut. One of the guys who came in, one of the surgeons who came in to assess taking off one or both of my legs had to start doing chest compressions because he says I won under five times. And he actually complained that chest compressions are really hard. Mm. And I'm like, okay, dude, you're, a, you're an orthopedic <laughs> surgeon. You guys are strong. Stop your whining and thanks. But dad, back to the original reason you asked the question, the first time that I remember dad starting to talk about what happened in Iwo Jima was after I got hit. In those long hours in the hospital when um, he would stand next to me on his two multiply, multiple times they'd rebuilt his knees. But still, despite that pain, he would stand next to me while I went through all sorts of physiotherapy to get my legs working again. And um, he started saying a little bit about what happened at EWO. He passed away just a couple years ago. I have to thank the multiple Marine commandants and all the Marines out there that uh, over the past decade or so before Dad passed away kept inviting me to all these ceremonies at 8th and I, mm. the Marine um, the, the headquarters. Yeah. 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 And they're like, so you're coming? Yes. And you're bringing your dad, right? <laughs> and they Once would, a Marine, always a Marine. Exactly. And they would, they would wheel him around in, in his wheelchair, and he just loved telling stories to the young Marines. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did the, the experience of growing up in the home of a World War II vet shape you? Well, mom and dad were both key parts of the war effort. My mom had been a Rosie the Riveter, Dorothy Dozier. And so she'd been back home trying to figure out how to get enough steel out of sheets of steel to make aircraft efficiently. So growing up with them, there was just, they're Maryland Democrats, just quiet patriots. You didn't talk about it much, just loyalty to the country and the flag were just things that were part of growing up. We had a great childhood, thanks to mom being a real adventurer at heart. She got dad to take a job in Iran, Mm. building a helicopter plant, Mm. and we were there for the revolution and got evacuated. How long were you there? Uh, A year and a bit, Mm -hmm. and we didn't want to leave. We loved Iran so much. We loved the Iranian people. You were in Tehran? We we were in Esfahan, north of Esfahan. So we (laughs) skipped all the evacuation flights and finally had to take a rather scary drive to Tehran through Gom, which was convulsed with demonstrations. And mom and my sister and I were eventually evacuated on an AC-130 with all the U.S. Embassy dependents. Mm -hmm. Dad, being dad, he never had much sort of cultural awareness. He just drove back to Esfahan because he had to close up shop and make sure that he got the contract signed so his company would get paid. And he helped evacuate the 3,000 more American folks who were still stuck in Esfahan. He helped the... Northrop Grumman folks organize a bus convoy, found the buses, found the diesel, and he only told us about that a couple years ago. He was a pretty humble guy. So how old were you at the time when you were in Iran? 13. So that sort of sense of adventure and being at the center of where history was being made. Mm-hmm. And when we were in Tehran, when the Shah left, and about a week later, when Khomeini, Ayatollah Khomeini came in, and... Dad and I went walking in the streets as people were actually celebrating. They were having impromptu parades, throwing candy to anyone on the sidewalks. Mm -hmm. And there was one little old lady who walked past us who just said in perfect English, this is a very bad day. Mm. And then she quietly Mm. disappeared into the crowd. Mm -hmm. But like any good reporter, you went to the action. You didn't (laughs) go away from the action. Yeah, thanks. And and, and my parents led the way. Uh So after that, I guess I was bitten. Yeah. So college at Wellesley and graduate school at UVA, University of Virginia, when and why did you develop an interest both in journalism and in international affairs, right? Two separate things. When did they, when did they happen and how did they come together? So uh, I was one of those scholarship kids at Wellesley. I owe a lot to the Student Aid Society and the uh, message board that linked you together with townsfolk, and I did a lot of cleaning houses and things like that to get through college. 
But during that time, I was also the director of WZLY Radio, our college radio Mm. station. I was the news director. And basically what we would do is rip and read from the Boston Globe Mm -hmm. and lament that the wire services wouldn't give our tiny 10-watt station access to their services. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the three years, I had to graduate early because it was just too expensive. And so I doubled up all my courses. So I took a winter session to get an extra credit in Israel. And this program had us talk to all sides of the debate. And I had been a Latin American scholar, but this three-week period galvanized my interest in the Middle East. And I came back and uh, said, I've got, to, I've got to go to the Middle East. And so I spent the next year bumming around Israel, working on a kibbutz, and working as an intern at various different places that would have me, trying to become a foreign correspondent. By the end of that year, I realized that all I would become was a fixer for somebody else. A fixer is someone who lives locally Mm -hmm. um, that a reporter coming in from the outside hires for their local knowledge. So that's when I went back to D.C. and joined a trade newsletter for a few years. Covered Capitol Hill, energy legislation, very boring, Mm -hmm. but very important. And somewhere along the way, a Washington Post reporter, Tom Lippman, invited me to visit him in his office. Great reporter. Great reporter. I thought, I've been discovered. I'm going to get hired. Well, one of the first lessons I learned is reporters don't hire other reporters. And he said, look, you are beating me on copy every day, but... We're snobs here at the Post. We don't hire from newsletters. You've got to differentiate yourself from all these other smart kids in Washington. So you got to go back to school or go overseas. Being an insecure overachiever, as I am. Mm -hmm. Me too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Me too, exactly. It's that type A thing, right? It is. It is. I quit my job and went to UVA to get a master's in foreign affairs I couldn't afford Columbia J School or London School of Economics that had also accepted me. But I was a Virginia resident, so I bartended my way through grad school. Probably learned more as a bartender watching people's personalities change. And talking to them, right? Wow. Yeah. Drawing them out. and I've heard from other reporters that, investigative reporters, bartending is a great early way to learn the art. Interesting. I got a grant from Wellesley College. I competed for a grant to go to Egypt and study militancy there. This is after you graduated from UVA? This was, I applied during UVA. And the grant was not supposed to be for career advancement. Mm -hmm. It was to study truth and beauty overseas. But after applying for it and thinking, oh, I didn't get it because they smoked me out. One of the ladies on the board said, you just want to become this, use this to become a foreign correspondent, don't you? Mm. And I, yes, yes, you got me. And uh, two days later, there was a blinking light on my answering machine when we still had answering machines. And one of the ladies said, we've decided to split the grant into truth and beauty. We're giving half of it to a painter who's going to go paint rivers in Germany and the other $10,000 to you to discover truth Truth in in Egypt. Egypt. Within two months of landing in Egypt, I had freelance jobs with the Washington Post, CBS News Radio, Christian Science Monitor Radio, and the San Francisco Chronicle, all places that wouldn't give me the time of day when I was back in D.C. So why did that happen? Because with the shrinking news map and the shrinking ability of even large news organizations to deploy people as they once did to foreign capitals, when you can find someone in a foreign capital where important things are happening, that you didn't have to fly there, you're not paying for their house, you're not paying for their health insurance, Mm. but you know that they can turn out a good basic news story Mm. and they know how to do do basic reporting, which I proved with the newsletter background, that's kind of gold. And I'm now in an editor position where I'm also wondering, hmm, who can I find in various foreign capitals who can give us an on-the-ground picture there? And there are people who probably, you know, couldn't get through the door if they were back here because of all the competition in D.C., just like Tom Lippman told me. So how long did you stay in Egypt? Three and a half years, three years, something like that. How did that shape you? During that time, Yasser Arafat came to Egypt to kick off the peace talks Mm -hmm. that led to him returning to um, Palestinian territory in Israel. And also the Gama Islamiyah launched a number of attacks. And I got to see my first 
terrorist attack aftermaths. There was a bus that they'd attacked with German tourists in it. I remember you know, that. They kind of got to see the first bodies and, okay, that's what that's like. And, um, of course, in Egypt, chaotic crime scenes. Also got hauled off by Egyptian state security and uh, interrogated in Asyut. I was going down to Asyut to interview families whose sons had been taken away for questioning by the government and had been returned in sealed coffins. I was in the middle of interviewing one of those families with the Washington Post translator, who was an Egyptian-American, and the family was so scared of the authorities that they turned us in. But they kept us talking to give the police time to mm. get there. And their interrogation of you was designed, you think, to intimidate you? Yes. And it, we, we, get, we kept getting passed from a small police station to a larger police station to a larger police station. And finally, we were being driven up to the doors of the Asyut police station, which is infamous. And I knew I'd probably get out of there, but I didn't know what would happen to Fatima, my Egyptian-American translator. Mm. So... I turned and looked at Fatima as we pulled up outside the station, and I said, we're getting out. And I opened the door to the traffic side, pulled her out. We whipped out our veils, which she always wore in conservative places like a suit, Mm -hmm. put them on, and just started walking towards the train station. All the security guys jumped out and started shouting at us, go back to the station. But they didn't want to physically touch us on the street because touching a white woman Mm -hmm. on the street like that would create a scene. And with them screaming at us, we just kept marching to the train station and uh, a bunch of Egyptian women saw us being harassed and started bawling them out. Why are you giving these nice women a hard time? Leave them alone. And they formed this little like phalanx protecting us Mm -hmm. and got us to the train station. I feel like I'm sitting with a CIA case officer, right, (laughs) who is telling me about experiences that they've had in their career that at the end of the day, toughen them up, right, and get them used to operating in those kind of environments. And that, that's, that's what this sounds like. And there were lots of experiences like that when what you had to do was gauge the risk against the reward. It was harder when I had to consider the welfare of the whole team when it wasn't just me. Right. Also, the people I was talking to felt more free to talk to me. I wasn't, in the case of a case officer, developing a relationship with someone who would be threatened with torture and death for talking to them. I mean, maybe in a couple of cases, maybe, maybe, yeah. It depends, right? Depends on where you are, what they're telling you. And But you know what? Maybe that's something I told myself to Mm -hmm. make it easier to do. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm just just helping them tell the story of their country. Sure. So then you go to London, right, Mm -hmm. where you get a job with CBS? CBS Radio. And once again, what would happen is just like being a stringer in a hard capital for people to get coverage of, if they're an editor back in Washington, D.C. In London, I was the radio correspondent who got deployed by CBS News Radio to the center of all sorts of different things. Russia for Putin's election, Mm -hmm. Northern Ireland for the OMA bombing, Hainan Island when the U.S. spy plane went down. and 2001. Yeah. And China, Beijing was only giving official visas to one correspondent. So our main correspondent stayed in Beijing. I snuck into Hainan on a tourist visa, but the Chinese authorities knew most of us there were on tourist visas. But then I got on CBS Evening News because I was there. And I broke some news basically by, I had learned a trick from covering the peace talks in Cairo, Egypt. No one expects what they assume to be a wealthy white woman to be stalking the stairwells. So Mm. I used to always be able to get to the Palestinian or the Israeli side by going up the stairwells Mm -hmm. to their floor. I did the same thing in Hainan. Mm -hmm. I got to the U.S. delegation and got information once the pilots, once the the crew had been released. I was able to get that to the this is really sounding like the intelligence business here. (laughs) (laughs) You know that, don't you? (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's it's a behavioral science um, in action. Sure. But here you are working at a fairly young age for CBS, right? The, The network of Walter Cronkite. That must have been pretty heady stuff. Oh, it was amazing to think. Um, On CBS radio, we were reaching 15 to 20 million people with our morning broadcasts. And CBS Evening News, it was kind of terrifying to make the transition to TV. I'd never planned on being a TV reporter, and I didn't have all the tools for it, like 
I didn't think a lot about how I would look on camera. And that Hainan experience, for instance, I'm about to go live into the CBS News broadcast. It's I have this exclusive that no one else has got that the crew has been released. And Dan says to me in my earpiece, Kim, Kim, your hair. The live shot position was on the 13th floor of a high rise. You know how the, the, wind, the wind kind of yeah. blows straight up? Yeah. So my hair looked like, you remember Heat Miser yeah. from that <laughs> Rudolph character? So basically I looked around. I didn't have hairspray. I didn't have hair clips. It is not something I thought about. I was a reporter. Right. And I, I turned to the cameraman and I asked for the one thing that I know every cameraman carries, duct tape. Mm. So with 30 seconds to live, I duct taped the back of my hair and such such as a television correspondent made. Yeah, that's great. That's a great story. Kim, you told us about what happened to you in Iraq. Mm. Can you talk a little bit more about the recovery and the road back, what that was like? So the toughest part was not the physical part. The physical part was pretty cut and dried. I loved when the physical therapist was scheduled to come in because when you have all the sort of reconstructive surgery that I had, it was and like- And you at Bethesda at the I time? I was at Bethesda Naval Hospital, which has now been renamed Walter Reed because they right. combined those two hospitals. But at the time, it was you know, a Navy institution and healing is a, you know, they wake you up at five and you, your, your day goes until midnight. And it's always between midnight and 5 a.m. that you feel the worst. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's a marathon. It wears out your parents. Fisher House was great. They had, um, provided a place for my parents to stay so that they could just walk to my hospital room. And I know you raise a lot of money for them to this very That's, day. They're a, they're a great charity that makes sure because having the, the, your loved ones near you mm-hmm. is key to healing. And learning to walk again and going through all the steps of rehabilitation was, I could understand that. That was getting from A to B. And that's why I loved when the physical therapist was headed my way, even though I knew that it would be a horribly painful hour ahead. Because she'd do things like crank my knees to make sure that they were bending properly. Because when you lie in a hospital bed for a long time, your heart isn't even used to pumping your blood all the way to your head. So Mm. when you stand up, you pass out. But the harder part was after the three months in the hospital plus time in a rehab facility was convincing people that I was well. I also talked to a psychologist the whole time I was in there, Vic Huertas, Navy psychologist. He'd heard that I was complaining. Everyone was telling me to shut up and stop talking about the incident. For a lot of people who have gone through trauma, whether it's a car crash back here or a car bomb overseas, talking about the incident, it's called experiential processing. Mm -hmm. There are a number of different terms. But that's something that worked for me. Mm -hmm. I like to tell stories. You can Mm -hmm. tell I like to talk. Sure. And people were telling me to shut up about it. He came in and said, I hear you want to talk. Mm. Start talking. Start talking. And so my nightmares and my flashbacks and my hypervigilance faded pretty fast. Post-traumatic stress disorder, as opposed to just post-traumatic stress, is generally diagnosed when the symptoms last longer than six weeks and they interfere with your daily life. I am an example of what's called post-traumatic growth. I took the experience and the wisdom from it, and I've tried to help others. I have been invited a few times to speak at TAPS, which is a grief organization. The hardest part, though, was survivor's guilt. I had survived. My crew, Paul and James, had died. Right. And it it took, I'd say it's taken almost 10 years to see all the members of their family who wanted to speak to me. And they weren't ready to speak to me because they were processing grief in their own way. Then the other I saw the same thing when we lost people at the agency, Uh, right? The survivors. Because they go through, they cycle through all those stages of grief, anger, blame. Right. I initially blamed myself and some of the family members blamed me. I survived. Their loved ones died. Mm -hmm. And what could I say? They were Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. We didn't choose to get hit by an Al-Qaeda car bomb. We all chose to be in that environment, but grief and logic don't go together. And it was actually the widow of Captain Funkhauser Jennifer Funkhauser, who brought us together. She engineered a meeting between the British families and me, at least a a couple of the relatives. And uh, the other amazing survivor of the story is Agatha Brolin, James Brolin's daughter. She was very young, maybe 10 or 11, when the bomb took her father. And no one would tell her what happened. Mm -hmm. So a couple years later, she came to D.C. and CBS had brought her over and she asked me to dinner. And 
She said, no one will tell me what happened. I need to know everything that happened that day and how my father died. What a great service for her. Well, she's just how amazing, this amazing young woman. A lot of people want to protect the survivors. Right. And what the survivors need is actually as many facts as they can get because that helps them process it. Jennifer Funkhauser used the Freedom of Information Act to get her husband's autopsy photos. She needed to know that there was no chance to save him at the scene. Mm -hmm. And she later used that to help comfort another member of his patrol who'd survived and felt like he should have been next to his captain and protected him. So how did this change you as a reporter? Ah, so you, you became the news for, right? You, you, you were the news. What I discovered was that reporters, despite their best intentions, bring their point of view into interviews. The standard civilian point of view of people who've been in a war zone is that you are permanently broken. You are a walking PTSD time bomb. And if you want to go back to that environment, it's because you're an adrenaline junkie right. who's somehow sick in the head. Right. So a lot of people I sat down with ended up writing stories about my PTSD when my psychologist told me, you never had PTSD, you had PTS. And even when I'd explain it in speeches and say, here's why I didn't have this, but had this, and here's how I was helped through that process. And I'd still have people raise their hands in the audience and say, okay, so about your PTSD. Mm -hmm. So being covered like that made me very sympathetic to people who are... Who you're covering. That I'm, yeah. And, and the first narrative is the one that often sets the tone. So if you don't get out there with your own narrative, and I did try to get out there with my narrative that I had been injured, both physically and in my soul, but I'd recovered from it. I did all this public speaking. But what I realized at CBS News is that for a lot of people, I was a walking case of survivor's guilt for them. I was a trigger. And they also wanted to protect me. It took them about three years to admit they never wanted me go to go back to a war zone or anywhere right. I might be injured. Right. And I'm like, um, I live in Washington, D.C. Right. And this is why you ultimately decide to leave CBS? Yeah, it was painful, but I decided... A real sense of family, right? Yeah, every news organization. The other reason that I wanted to go back to my old job in the Middle East, I had a house in Jerusalem, but it's that you're part of a mission. I, with this small group of smart, outside-the-box thinkers who I had worked with for years, we'd spent almost every major holiday together. You know, Christmas in Bethlehem, Christmas in Baghdad. This is another parallel, by the way, between journalism and intelligence. Did we like each other? Did we socialize (laughs) when we got back home? No, that annoying person. But in the field, that is the person that you wanted next to you in the trenches because they'd come up with the crazy solution that would get us through that checkpoint or get that piece of video uploaded and get us on the air. It was Mm -hmm. the, and we felt like we were telling stories that saved lives. Yeah. Kim, there's a couple of stories that you were involved in putting together that I want to ask you about. The first was 2007, CBS Sunday Morning airs a piece that you did where you interviewed two female vets who lost limbs in Iraq. It's a remarkable piece. And you won uh, the Peabody Award, Edward R. Murrow Award for the piece. Can you talk about that a little bit? That was an amazing moment to sit down with those two women because in the hospital, I'd been around military doctors, but I had a acinetobacter. I had a anti-drug resistant bacteria infection that meant I was on isolation. A lot of troops coming back from war zones get it. So I couldn't talk to soldiers, much less being able to sit down with two women who understood exactly what I was now facing, which was the American public doesn't really have in its lexicon combat injured woman. Americans don't realize how many women troops there are in the field, as well as women journalists. And when I would get questions like, oh, how does it feel being one of the only women in a war zone? Well, actually, there are lots of us there. And to sit down with these- Female intelligence officers as well. Uh, yes. I guess I met some of those that I'm only now finding out were intelligence officers. I thought they were something else, like diplomats. That's good. Yeah. They did their job. So- To sit down with two people who were like me trying to figure out, okay, where where do I fit back in a community where I'm essentially invisible? Now, both of them had lost limbs. So the other thing that they, that was so maddening for them is they said, you know, 
a guy with an injured limb, uh, with a missing limb, people automatically assume he got injured in a war zone and walk up to him and say, thank you for your service. Them, people would look away. And uh, I was lucky my injuries are not visible that my, you know, I just don't wear skirts. So um, I didn't have the same sort of in-your-face reaction from the American public. But I hope that getting to talk about their stories help them process it because helping it, it really helped me to tell my own story. I've ended up telling the story of the bombing, at least in the first maybe seven years afterwards, to groups of soldiers, to students, to you name it. I've spoken to an audience about PTS versus PTSD. And I really thank the CBS Sunday morning team led by Rand Morrison who came across those two women and came up with that idea. The counter to that is they, like me, wanted to move on from their injuries. They didn't want their injuries to define them. You find that people who've been injured, um, they have a couple of choices. You can become codependent on your injury, and that is your identity from here on out. Or you can say, okay, that's part of my body of experience, part of what contributes to my wisdom, but I don't want to be the amputee or, in my case, you know, bomb girl, as some tabloid called me in a mm-hmm. headline. And that, I think, is a sign that you have processed your injury when you've sort of made it part of you know, That's like that rough year I had in high school. And now I'm taking the lessons from that and I'm moving on with the next stage of my life. That's great. So the second story was 2016, you're in Baghdad for the Daily Beast, and the Iraqi government says, here, uh, here's an ISIS terrorist. Wow, yeah. And you have a remarkable interview with a guy who is cold-blooded ISIS killer. So that was an amazing trip. I had not been back to Baghdad since, I'd been back once since the bombing with um, Admiral Mike Mullen. And that was the trip that precipitated my departure from CBS because I realized I loved being back in the field so much that I I needed to go somewhere where I'd be allowed to do that. And uh, AP has a lot of injured people that they allow to go back in the field because they'd gone through that iteration, which CBS hadn't gone through yet. But this trip, I wasn't with Admiral Mike Mullen. I was not with CBS News, as I'd always been, even when I went to Iraq under Saddam, I'd had the CBS infrastructure helping me out. So um, I had to source my own visa, find my own translator, find my own transport around in a city that's very dangerous where American diplomats um, and American troops barely are allowed to leave what's Mm -hmm. called the green zone, the protected government area in Baghdad. I didn't understand how rattled I was until I had two fender benders in the space of 10 days before I left. And I've never had a car accident in my life prior to that. Being on the streets, driving from the airport into Baghdad city center was um, tough. But once I sort of was able to, I, I, I got met by a great translator who actually I met thanks to the current Iraqi ambassador. He said, I hear you're going to Iraq. I've followed your story for years. Come to my house for dinner and meet some people. That's great. And through that network, I had a a bunch of people who kept me safe. Mm -hmm. Now, the very first night I got there, I'm freaked out from the trip. Mm -hmm. I haven't slept much the night before. Mm -hmm. And my brand new fixer translator says, I've got an interview for you. Don't know definitely if it's going to come through, but we've got to go to this government building at 11. 11 at night, we go to this compound that I know is the old intelligence compound. Again, one of those places that, you know, you go in and you don't come out is is the story attached to it. And we're met by some high-ranking officials who take all of our phones. And I'm like, great. And now I have no way to communicate. And then they drive us through this darkened compound and take me to a conference room and bring in this ISIS prisoner for me to interview. I'm in a strange situation as a reporter because how honest can he be with all of these government officials sitting around the table? He's been sort of brought out. Sure, for a purpose. Yeah, but he was pretty stark about what he said. Uh, I mean, he was 
he was pretty honest. He uh, explained why he'd been lured into joining ISIS. He thought Sunnis were being abused. And he said that his wife, in the communications he'd had through the International Red Cross with her, because they facilitate communications with prisoners, had said, you know, basically, you're, you're dead to me. And he was tearing up over the fact he, he knew he wouldn't see his kids again. Mm-hmm. When I asked him about the people that he'd been responsible for killing, he, uh, he wasn't seeing them as people. That's one of my takeaways. So one of the Iraqi officials around the table picked up on this. I'd happened to bring a copy of my book, which has some real gory pictures in it from those early days in the hospital. My, my, my skull shaved with a big surgical scar, and he opens it to that and brings it over to the prisoner mm. and said, you know, your bombs, this is what you've done. This lady is a survivor of Al-Qaeda. And uh, the prisoner just, he just didn't know where to look. So the palpable sense of shame and the fact that he's destroyed his life too was something that I, I just, I came away from this going, you know, that's, that's probably the kind of person who planted the bomb that killed my team. Mm. Who knows what grievance that they strongly sure. believed was happening to sure. them and their family sure. and their life is, his life is over too. So here's yet another parallel. Right between these two businesses, which is in the intelligence business, it's extraordinarily important to be able to tell the president, national security team, the other guy's perspective, right? Whether it's Kim Jong-un or Vladimir Putin or an ISIS terrorist, what is their worldview, right? What, what, why do they do what they do? It's extraordinarily important, right? And that's exactly what you were doing here. Yeah. So, Kim, talk a little bit about what it's like to cover the intelligence community. Ah, it has been a, a friendly bunch. Yeah, it's been a real puzzle because it's gotten harder. One of the things that I've learned about at least the CIA is that they have learned from bad coverage in the past so that when I call with a tough question, they will attempt to get an answer. If I really have the goods on something, which I have in the past I know. in a few stories. <laughs> yeah. I know. <laughs> I feel like as, as a national security reporter who is covering an agency where there were people out there in the field risking their lives to keep us safe. So first of all, I feel like you, you must reach out to the agency, whoever you're covering, and let them know what you know and what you're about to publish so that they can take that opportunity, in some cases, to make an argument about why you shouldn't publish. And that argument has been successfully made when I was at AP a couple of times. There was a drone base in Saudi Arabia operating over Yemen, and the White House and the CIA successfully argued with my editors that if you publish the location of that base, which is not involved in anything nefarious, you will be threatening the lives of the people who are operating out of there because it's in a remote location and that'll make it a target for attack. Other times I realized that people know that all they have to say to me is... Uh, well, you know, someone might be, get killed if you publish that. And there have been a couple of times where an editor has had to help steal my spine because I'm the survivor in al- of an Al-Qaeda car bomb. I don't want to be responsible for stopping an intelligence operation that is stopping Al-Qaeda. But, oh, it gets me a great headline. How do you deal with, you know, you're a patriot. You really are. And I think that's been clear in the last 45 minutes. And yet there are people who are sharing classified information with you, right? How do you kind of square those two things? So you and I have very different takes on what's classified information. Okay, or on classified information. There is overclassification that's been discussed much on Capitol Hill. There are things that, you know, New York Times articles that once published, I understand from people in the intel world, get classified. I think that's ridiculous. There are times when talking about a program that the government is trying to keep secret, not for the good of the American people, but because it might embarrass someone. That's the kind of example where you can try to make an argument, and sometimes you'll win, and sometimes you'll lose. In the case of a very controversial story that ended up getting a bunch of us at the AP investigated by the Department of Justice, 
Adam Goldman and Matapuzo discovered that a second version of an underwear bomb made by al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula had been intercepted by, they thought, U.S. intelligence. And the problem was they discovered it had been intercepted just after an anniversary of 9-11 in which the Obama administration insisted over and over that there were no active plots against the American public that they had to fear, which, the as the AP saw it, that fit into... The Obama right. administration's right. narrative, we've killed Osama bin Laden and now there's no problem. Right. Well, this discovery right. meant, well, there was a problem. And so... This was al-Qaeda in Yemen. Yeah. So they they delayed publication of the story at the government's request. But there were a lot of conversations had with the Obama administration over that. And since I hadn't been the originator of the story, I didn't have a vote on whether or not it should be published. But... They did use some of my material in an AP story that had run concurrently. You know how a newspaper has a main bar and then a sidebar? Mm-hmm. Well, two reporters, uh, another AP reporter and I had written a sidebar. It had some anonymous sources in it. It was a historical look at the U.S. counterterrorism program in Yemen. Well, in AP rules, once you take some material with anonymous sources and put it in a story, you have to put that reporter's name down at the bottom of the story. Mm-hmm. So what I meant by it's getting harder to interview people is that there was a leak investigation. And the Department of Justice later told the AP, maybe six months after they'd done it, that they'd seized 40 days of phone records of the AP reporters involved in the story. And they'd basically interviewed a lot of different people that I uh, talked to. Now, I had been using some means to cover my conversations with really important people, mostly reporters like people in your profession. When you're going to talk about something sensitive, you talk about it face-to-face. But still, I didn't know that I could get investigated like that for doing my job. So, you know, I didn't sign the secrecy form to honor what's classified and what's not. Right. I am in a pact with the American public to make a judicious decision on their need to know if something I've uncovered indicates the government seems to be hiding something yeah. for the wrong reasons. Yeah. You know, we were at a conference together, um, and, and somebody, we won't use names here, but, but somebody asked you and a couple other journalists, who gave you the right to make that decision? And I remember yeah. one of the journalists said, James Madison you know, referring to the First Amendment. And and people laughed, but I actually said to myself, that's exactly right. That's what we're talking about here. And it's a tension. It's a tension that's always going to be there. And I think the way reporters manage it is is exactly the way you talked about, which is talk about it, right? Tell them what you're doing. And and if they make a case for why you should keep a particular piece out, you know, you you make the right decision. You're right. It It does sound arrogant, but that's why you have to approach this job with great humility, and also with a daily fight to be accurate and to try to cover all sides. That was the best thing about whether it's BBC, CBS, or AP, what my scripts went through at CBS Evening News, um, what my pieces went through at the AP, that, you know, wait, you don't have the Republican side in this. Wait, you've got to have more from the administration. To make sure that giving that 360-degree view to the public, not just the person who's angry about something and is willing to talk to you. Now, sometimes the other side won't talk to you. Right. And unfortunately, in that case, then only the squeaky wheels yeah. story gets out. Yeah. Kim, two more questions. You know, you said early on that your profession, journalism, is under intense pressure, right? And I think I know what you meant by that. I remember when Hugo Chavez was first elected in Venezuela the political opposition was was gone. There essentially wasn't a political opposition. There wasn't an opposition leader to stand up and paint a different direction for the future of Venezuela than the one that Chavez was painting. And as a result of that, the Venezuelan media became the political opposition. And in becoming the political opposition, it lost its credibility with the Venezuelan people. I just wonder if you see any resonance there with what's happening here a little bit. I remember a story I read, a political story, about Mike Pompeo spending time at the White House. And it was critical of the amount of time that Mike was spending at the White House. This was somehow taking away from his ability to run the agency. And I read it and said, this is total BS. It's a good thing that Mike Pompeo is getting in to see the president, right, and putting the intelligence on the table. And so it's stories like that that have me thinking about the Venezuela story. Wow. The Venezuela example is not one I'd heard before, but I think it's a cautionary tale. 
The Wall Street Journal editor just had to write all of his reporters saying, you're letting too much opinion, too much anti-Trump opinion creep into your stories. Now, look, we are supposed to be critical of every White House, but right now when we get directly personally attacked by President Donald Trump, there is that natural human reaction to say, okay, I'm going to I'm going to get you for back for that. Game on. <laughs> and that's not our job. So that means it's all the more important for us to watch each other. Now now there's some places that are going to go in that direction and that's their business model and that is a business decision. Consumers out there, what I'm saying to you is educate yourself on the sort of ground rules of the news organizations that you choose to follow and that's why at the Cypher Brief, we're going to be building ground rules that you can read here. And then also, if you see somebody straying from those ground rules, write the ombudsman, tweet at them, call them on it, because I need the American public to trust right. us. Exactly right. And that means we have to be all the more careful about if you're going to fire off a volley at the commander in chief, make sure it's accurate right. and Read it again, read it again, read it one more time, and make sure your opinion isn't in it. There's another place for that. That's the editorial page. And I think we've really got to be hard on ourselves as journalists to keep those apart. It's never been more important than it is now. Last question. If, if you had um, a few minutes with the president to talk to him about his worldview, the approach he takes to keeping the country safe, what would, what would you want to know? What would you ask him? How is he or she going to use American power? Are you going to use it to open up new U.S. information centers like the State Department used to have to present that face? Are you going to do it through military to military cooperation, which can be misperceived? Are you going to do a combination of that? What is your commitment to world stability and how are you going to carry it out? Yeah, great questions. Kim, thanks for being with us. You know, it strikes me that you spent a good chunk of your career at CBS. I now work for CBS. I spend a lot of time here at the Cypher Brief. You now work for the Cypher Brief. And this podcast is a joint production of CBS News and the Cypher Brief. So I think that's really cool. So thanks for being with us. It's fantastic. And it's uh, great to be a CBS veteran and part of the Cypher Brief family. That was Kim Dozier. This is Intelligence Matters. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.